You heard me say that today's program is going to be all about men. We're actually going to start off talking to one man in particular. And this is sort of unique for Mind Talk. Um, this is actually going to wind up being a three-part conversation. Uh, building a Better Man, a Blueprint for Decreasing Violence and Increasing Pro-Social Behavior in Men is authored by three gentlemen, each one very different, each one with very different life experiences. And today we're going to meet Dr. Ramel Smith, who is one of the authors. Dr. Smith is a licensed psychologist and president of Blacksmith Psychological Consultative Services in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Smith, welcome to Mind Talk. Thanks a lot, Dr. Brewer. It's a pleasure to be on my talk. Well, Dr. Smith, I'd like to get started with why the book, A Blueprint for Decreasing Violence and Increasing Pro-Social Behavior in Men. Why? You know what? It's it's funny that you asked this question because the way the book started was just through a a casual conversation with two colleagues at lunch. Uh, Dr. Seymour and myself were both uh, child psychologists at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, And just over lunch, we were talking about the situation of our country and about the violence that men go through, through the prison incarceration, the Mm -hmm. violence we see on the streets, and then the violence we see in the homes with domestic violence, things of that nature. And as we started to talk, we looked at ourselves and said, we said, you know what, we're part of the problem. We talk about it, but what are we doing? And so we said, you know what, we come from very different backgrounds. So sometimes when you come from a certain background and you talk about violence, you can kind of be skewed away from a certain population. So what we said, if we could like come in from two different angles, we thought we'd be able to approach it in a much more meaningful manner. Mm. And so our question became, how could we do it? And then we knew uh, we kind of took a model really from the CDC. And what we wanted to do was to look at it from a three-pronged attack. How could we look at it from a prevention, a secondary, and a tertiary? Uh, you want to always stop things if you can't. Frederick Douglass said it's easier to build strong men, to, to build strong boys and repair broken men. Yes, so true. if we can catch this early and upstream, this would be better. But then realism set in. We said, you know what, we also have to look at it. What, what's going on with the men today. How can we do something to help the men mm-hmm. who are hurting themselves, hurting their families, hurting the community? And so we just started to talk, and slowly we started to build a program. We infused it into a program for boys. But we saw that it had the ability and the potential to stretch to other audiences, and we stretched it out to where we work with uh, men who are professionals to men who have been incarcerated in the correctional system here in Wisconsin. So it started small, and it sounds like it turned out huge and, quite frankly, really important. I mean, I, I have a copy of the book in front of me, and this is a book that I would say um, it, it's very readable for the lay person uh, as well as the clinician. So thank the three of you for that, because you went from two to three. You have a third uh, co-author who we'll be talking to at another time. Yeah, and you know what, that that was the big part about it. As we started to talk, you're right, it started so small because it started with a conversation. We did a couple of presentations on it, and before we did the first presentation, when we were at a meeting trying to get it together, there was another psychologist by the name of Hector Torres. He's a Hispanic Latino man, and uh, Dr. Seymour said, uh, you know what, it would be great if we got Hector in. And I said, you know, I didn't know Hector, so I said, well, I trust your judgment. You know, let's bring him in. Okay. As Hector came in, he brought in, actually, to be perfectly honest, two different pieces of the puzzle that we didn't have before. Hector is not only a Latino man, but he's also homosexual. So he brought in these different viewpoints 
that we were missing all together. And one of the things what we wanted to look at was how is a man defined? What is a man? So we really went to the beginning of how do we, you know, even invent ourselves? How do we define ourselves? And having all those three voices there, once we did our first, present- our first presentation, all three of us, mm-hmm. we knew we had something special. We yeah. knew we were on to something. And so it just became a model of uh, trying to redefine, <laughs> selling, going back to the drawing board, looking at the research, looking at the literature, trying to be projective, being proactive, looking at what the trends were going towards the future, and then trying to really sit down and say, how can we use our collective experiences, our collective education together to get something down that can reach not only the clinicians who help the people, but for, like you said, the layperson, if Mm -hmm. somebody picks this up and wants to say, how do I go about this, what's the way? So one of the things that we do is we go in it from an individual standpoint, which yes. sometimes you don't see so much in the clinical world. That's we will true. divulge a little bit more about ourselves because not only are we the presenters on this topic, we're also clients, so to speak. Right. So we, what we try to do is let people know that we may be the expert on this topic, but we're still a work in progress ourselves. So sometimes we try to show by our failures, our defeats, how we've overcome them, how we triumphed over those things, ways to do it, and then ways in which we're still struggling to let everybody know that this is not something that you achieve, but it's an ongoing process of trying to become a better man. Well, speaking of speaking from the the personal, which is often, you're right, not, um, usually not in anything that is geared towards uh, clinicians, I'd like to start with your personal history. Tell us about you, where you were born, uh, who was in your family, just take us to the little you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm at now. So I've been born and raised here my whole life. I grew up uh, on the side of town that most people wouldn't want to be on. Um, but what I tell people, I said, although it was rough, it was hard, one thing I had that I was very happy with is I had love. Mm. My parents divorced when I was about seven or eight, which was really tough. But uh, what happened is, my mother's side of the family was so, so together, and they lived in Milwaukee. My father, most of his family lived uh, in a small city called Beloit in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, so we all stayed with my grandmother, basically. Huh. So a lot of my cousins, we were like siblings. So my uncles had more of a, a role as a father figure uh, inside of my life. And my dad was still there, even though my parents were divorced. But I think a lot of those things that you talk about when you talk about dysfunctional homes, you talk about communities in poverty, you get caught up in some of the lifestyle. Uh, being a young African-American male inside of a city like that, you get kind of caught up in two worlds because you want to progress. You want to do the quote-unquote right thing. You want to achieve the American dream. But then you also have some of the pressure and the negative pressure from the community to do some things that are somewhat antisocial to kind of prove your worth. And, and is, as you're young, go ahead. Is the American dream the same for a young African-American boy as it might be for somebody else? Well, I think the American dream in itself is because the American dream is to be able to do better. Okay. Not to say is it as easily accessible to all. I would say definitely not. Okay. But the American dream in its, in its pure sense to be able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps, improve yourself, improve it not only for yourself but for your posterity, I think that's alive in everybody earlier, 70s, 
sadly, what happens is people encounter situations where they start to believe that the American dream is not a reality for them, mm -hmm. and then they take it on into their own hands in a different manner, which sometimes causes more problems. Absolutely. You say in your book that as a youngster, you were trained in the warrior-like fashion that easily fit the tradition of African ancestry and the American culture. So talk about that, if you would. Well, you know what, a lot of the times when we think about a man from his pure sense, what is it to be a provider, to be a protector, to be strong, to be there? And so my father, his his brothers, my mother, my maternal uncles, they all showed me what it was to be a man. And to be a man was to be tough, to be there for your family, to love them, to provide for them, and to take care of those who could not take care of themselves. A lot of my uncles did a lot of community service mm. in the community via being coaches, things of that nature, helping out other young boys who maybe lacked in certain areas. And so seeing that was a big, big influence on me, knowing that it wasn't just about me, but it was about all of the others. Mm -hmm. Our family came from a very uh, strong religious component, so that helped to put some morals and ethics and values inside of me as a young person also. So when we talk about that young warrior aspect, it was more of a, it's about the community. It's not just about self and even that immediate nuclear family. It's about your family, but then also that circle and sphere right around it. Folks, you are listening to Dr. Ramel Smith. My name is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. We will take a break and we will return in just a moment. Dr. Smith, I'd like to get a sense from you of what you learned growing up about women and about relationships and about just being black in America. You know what? I, to be perfectly honest, I had several educations, and this is what I talk about, the superior man and inferior man, which side is being fed. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of different things. Um, it's a very misogynistic culture that we lived in, and I think that transcends any race. So I heard a lot of misogynistic views. But then yet, I still heard a lot of those same type of values to uplift women, to protect women, and go from there. So from a negative side, it was always about me, told about me, as far as as far as far one way to prove your manhood was about the amount of women that you had been with. Okay. And not only sexually, but how it meant as far as the women liking you, being that charismatic magnet, and that would somehow increase your power, your reference power, your status in the neighborhood as far as being that ladies' man. So... Everything about the things that I did, it wasn't about being smart for the sake of being smart, mm -hmm. but sometimes being smart because the women, the girls at that time, liked smart guys. It wasn't being athletic just for the sake of being athletic, but okay. because girls liked the athletic guys. And But as I said, from a negative side, it was about how many women could you say that you had had who liked you, who you had been with, who mm -hmm. you had kissed, who you had touched in whatever type of manner. I also was taught by some people 
that it was okay to be violent towards women. In fact, that if you love your woman, that was one of the ways that you showed your love. I was also taught that was one way how you kept them in check. Mm-hmm. There was a big thing inside of our neighborhood as far as being what we would call whipped or hand-packed, things of that nature, where it was like the woman had control. Mm-hmm. And that was the one way to emasculate a male is to say that he did not have control over the females in his life, in his circle. Now, contrastly, when I go into church, I heard some of those <laughs> same misogynistic views. The man was the head of the house of women. Uh-huh. That was where in the wedding ceremonies they still used the word obey. The woman was to obey the man. The man is the head of the house. And these things was emphasized, and not to be a leader in a positive sense, but almost in a dictator, tyrant type of fashion. Gotcha. So I grew up with one side of that in my mind. But on the opposite end, I was raised, you know, there's a saying that a woman can't raise a man. And I agree with that to some extent. Mm. But I will say this, a woman can raise a human being because she's a human being herself. Okay. And so being raised, having a lot of women inside of my life who are very influential, I heard them tell me how they wanted a man to be honest, to be truthful, to be caring, to be concerned, to be genuine. Mm. And oftentimes, it's the advice you hear from women that becomes more effective, actually, than the advice you hear from men. And so having these two different types of of information coming into my ear, not just from the women about being positive, but I had some uncles who I looked up and actually revered because it wasn't anything they said, but it was what they modeled. Mm how they treated their wives, how they kissed their wives, how they hugged their wives, the gifts they bought, the things they did for the house to make them happy, those things that said in other ways than through verbal language. So like I said, growing up, we always say to kids, we call them knee-high private eyes. They're wonderful (laughs) observers, but they're poor interpreters. So growing up with this combination of information, it was a Jekyll and Hyde because sometimes you want to be that good guy that did all of the things that you thought were good things to do. And then sometimes you fed into the other negative aspects in order to hold your reputation or not to be seen as soft or weak or any of these things by your fellow comrades. To be the powerful man. To be the powerful man, to be the strong man, what sometimes men believe is that man's man, (laughs) to be the ladies' man, so to speak. And we do some things sometimes outside of our character, even that we don't like or that we don't agree with, but for the sake of fitting in or looking a certain way among our peers. You talk about uh, the media, and it, it seems like you've got a couple of bones to pick with the way in which the media depicts men, African American men in general, and certainly African American men. Uh, what's that about? When we look at the injustices that has always been reaped upon young African-American males seemingly for no reasons, the countless hangings on false allegations and charges, we even think about some of the things that's been done in the medical field when we look at the Tuskegee experiment yes. with the, the, the syphilis epidemic that was brought up on. Mm-hmm. There's a distrust with African-Americans, with our government, and that trickles down to every other thing from local and state authorities. Would you say that episode. would you say that the distrust is founded or unfounded? Because a lot of people say there goes the, those black people just complaining about race again. Yeah, but you know what? This is one of those things where it says it's not it's not paranoia if it's true. And so you said, is a person paranoid? Right. Well, every young African American male is given a talk, and this is what the talk states: when the police come. 
Be respectful. Don't make any sudden moves. Answer their questions. And what it is is telling us right away that although the police are there to protect and serve, there's a fear, there's an anger, there's an animosity that they have towards us. And I don't think it's just white cops. So when I say police, I think there's a problem with authority in general. Okay. Whenever you give a person authority, I think it's just intent to act more aggressively. I think it's inherent with the position. That's why training is so important for anybody who takes on a position like this. But you mix that authority complex in with the racial hatred, the racial stereotyping that has been done from the past. And just as you said before, those thoughts, there are those blacks. We think about Ferguson, Missouri, after Mr. Brown had been shot. And the next day they demonstrated, and you saw someone from the Ferguson Police Department talk about the people and these are his words so it's not an exaggerated quote he called them animals so if you have a person who's sworn and paid by you to protect and to serve you but sees you as an animal yeah well it's no different than going fishing or going deer hunting you know if it's an animal that's coming after me well your life is not as important to me you're almost a soulless creature and so when we see these shootings and we think about Trayvon Martin this is why Trayvon Martin what happened in Florida was so scary. He was shot by someone who was not even a police officer. Right. Right. Here is you have a state that says stand your ground law. So what we have is a, a very hyper visual land team hand who's um wants to be in the security force in the police department in the worst way. And trying to do some good. I won't say that he was all bad in his efforts trying to protect his community. He was a bit overzealous. The police told him what to do. He disobeyed an order from police command central to stay in the car and let the police handle it. Now, here is a grown man coming after a boy who has no authority from a law standpoint, asking him questions, giving commands. So whatever Trayvon Martin does at that point, and I wasn't there, so I don't know who was the aggressor, but if the stand-your-ground law, in fact, is a law for all people in Florida, Trayvon had the right to act aggressively as he did. Mm. But they said that George Zimmerman had the right, although he was the aggressor. And what he did was he was an armed aggressor. And so against a teenage kid, he ended up shooting that kid, was acquitted. So what every black person now sees is, wow, you don't even have to be the police (laughs) to kill me. So when the police comes, who has more authority, and their word is taken with so much more highness, what are we supposed to do? Trayvon wasn't doing anything. Now, the guy didn't know what he was doing. But he wasn't doing anything in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And so when we see this with our young children, we're afraid. As a 42 African year old African-American male, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. I'm still afraid. When the cops come by, I panic. I know I haven't done anything. I may have mm-hmm. on a suit and a badge that says Dr. Smith, but I'm still afraid. Now, they say, well, maybe that's a bit paranoid. Not if things have happened to you, happened to your family, happened to your friends, right. and happened to a community of people you don't know where you just see things are the same. Right. Now, I think that same things will sometimes be counterproductive because you'll get a person where maybe the police officer or authority figure has no ill intentions, but the person will say, hey, that's not me today. I'm not in the mood. Right. And they will become the provocateur and the situation comes, and then it looks like a same situation of harassment and whatnot. So I'm not going to say that we always do the right thing. It's never our fault. We're never on the wrong end of the law. But as a person on average, 
when you look at the people who are sworn to protect to serve you and you look at them as I'm not for sure if they're friend or foe right that's a problem so Dr. Smith for someone who is listening to our conversation and feels moved to pick up your book um and really begin to work about changing the violence in their community what is a first question that you would like that person or that community to ask of itself as they begin to sort of tease out what's going to work in their community with regards to reducing violence? And that's the, that's the exact question that we need to ask. What, what do we need to do? There's no way you can solve a problem if you don't know what the exact problem is. Okay. So for each community, we have to identify what is the issue. So a project that I'm working with now is called the Walnut Way Project. It's in one of the neighborhoods, actually, that I spent a lot of one of my summer, a lot of my summers in growing up as a kid. Now over here, we still have kids who are doing some of the things that we would see on the news, where we would say, "Yes, see, it's justified what we do to them. Look at them. Look at their behavior. Look at the things that they do." Mm. So we actually started a program where we have young men come, and once a week, we just have different speakers come, put different positive knowledge in their minds. And we just culminated it on yesterday by taking these young men in the woods. We did a, a pseudo-rites of passage program, but a camping trip. Now, some of the people said, oh, I'm not going in the woods. Oh, I'm not going. <laughs> and the guys we took into the woods, if most people saw them, they would be afraid. They would run. When we got them in the woods, these young men turned into completely different human beings. How so? They were they were so compassionate because, see, we needed each other. It was no fights because uh-huh. we, we literally had to canoe to our campsite, which was an hour and away from which we were dropped off. So once you're in the water in a boat with someone, there's no fighting because your survival literally depends upon it. That's right. When we were putting tents up together, we literally needed each other. When we were putting a bonfire together, we were doing it. And the range of men was from ages 10 to 30 wow. that was inside of the group. Now, most of them were between the ages of 18 and 23, but we had that, that range, okay. um, if you want to say, from a man and a max. Mm-hmm. But what I saw was these young men get out into the fresh air where we had space. It was an environment where we, again, going back to that superior man and inferior man, we fed that inferior man. We fed hope. We fed positivity. We fed love. We were not afraid to use the love word, the L word. And we said these things, and we had the guys interacting. And you could see their faces when we said how proud of them we were, how much we loved them, how much we cared about them, how much we wanted things to be better for them in the future as we started to set goals for what they were going to do. And the problem is when we get back to the neighborhood, we see that there was a shooting not 15 blocks away from them, and you get back into reality. So what we have to do is to continue, like we talked about the young man with the self-esteem. We have to constantly pour love, positivity, and a true sense of a real hope for these young men. I think Jeffrey Canada and his Harlem Children's Zone did a great example mm. of showing Harlem, New York, how taking one block at a time, how it could come. Well, see, what happens is most of the time people don't want to do bad. People don't want to do wrong. You look at some of the rappers of today. As soon as they get money, what do they want to do? They want to leave those neighborhoods and buy big houses. That's the American dream. They want those things. Right. But it's still a part of them that feels they have to keep it real, and that's the self-destructive part. Instead of coming back and doing something positive, they think they have to still share in some of those old negative traits to show that they have not changed, they have not sold out. 
But once we can put that spirit of hope, of love back into the community, we see that some of the people who we fear could be some of those same people who we come to revere. Those people who are so intelligent, they could be the one who help to give a cause or a cure for cancer. Those could be the ones who in somehow, some way, create an educational system that's not that set up for all different types of learners that creates a different curriculum or instruction style. This could be the engineer that designs something special. This could be a person who learns how to go with the new wave of water and learn something, how we could use this more, this resource greater in our society. So many of our systems, so many of our resources, we're losing. And as soon as we value those resources and show them that they are worthwhile and give them a true avenue, not a substandard education, not substandard housing, once we give them something to really believe in, they attach to it like you couldn't believe. Once you get caught up in a situation, you have to make a couple of guesses. That's the A, a couple of guesses. What are those guesses? Those are your options on what you could possibly do. So you look at what's the very best thing you could do, what's the very worst thing you can do. The C is to choose the best one. So out of all of those guesses, those options you have, you have to choose the best one. And then the E is the most important part, is to execute that decision. And that's the hardest part because sometimes we know what's the right thing to do or that we should do, but we don't have the internal strength to do it for many reasons. But what we tell people, if you take the, the, the mental energy to recognize what's going on, to make these couple of guesses and to choose which is the best one, you have to have the strength to execute it. And if you can execute it, you give your rational brain a chance to act. Now, that doesn't always mean the rational brain makes the best decision, mm-hmm. but it's a lot different if you're consciously doing something rather than reacting. We have so many young men who say, you know, I did it, and afterwards, oh, I knew it. I knew I was wrong. I knew I messed up. We said, that's the emotional brain. So the question is, how can we recognize the situation? And part of that recognizing is not even getting ourselves in some of those traps. So we go back into the psychology with avoidance and escape. It's much better to avoid than to escape. So if we can recognize certain things that's not in our favor, we want to avoid that before even getting into that situation. And that's the race strategy in a quick nutshell. We, um, from the literature, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goldman, Mm -hmm. I think illuminates that point very well with the emotional brain and the rational brain. Thank you very much. That, um, I think that that's a way for people to begin to think about what it is that they can do, quite frankly, men and women. One of the things that I think is really wonderful about your book is that you've actually uh, laid out a program with handouts for people who actually want to create groups around this issue. And that's one of the things that we like about it because we've given a skeleton. We didn't give a very operationalized and standardized, do A, B, C, and D, you have to do it this way. What we try to do is to create a skeleton so anybody from whether it's from a religious group or if you're working with elderly population a geriatric population or if you're working with a school age population you can get some ideas for it and tailor it to your specific group and then move on that way and would you say that it can be a group any kind of group could it be a religious group a community group or is this just for clinical groups no, it's exactly for any type. When we talk about building a better man, it's for a better man in any type of situation. Obviously, the, t- the specific type of group is they would have to sprinkle on some of the things that would be beneficial to them that would be germane and relevant to that group. But we made it 
where it could be flexible to meet with anybody at any time. As I said, we've worked with uh, inmates with this, and we've worked with professional doctors and lawyers and businessmen with this. We've worked with uh, 12-year-old boys with this. And when we what we found is that all we have to do is change the language, in a sense. We changed mm-hmm. to the group. If we have a all-African-American group, we'll tailor it to that group. If we have a diverse group, we tailor it to sprinkle it in. We think the better, the more diverse the group is, the better chance it has to fully succeed. But we understand that doesn't happen in all times. But we think we have created something that has a flexibility to work with men of all ages that transcend a lot of those demographics that uh, usually get us caught up in a negative manner. Well, and and, and I think you're right. Um, again, folks, Dr. Ramel Smith, co-author with Dr. Hector Torres and Dr. William Seymour of Building a Better Man, a Blueprint for Decreasing Violence and Increasing Pro-Social Behavior in Men. And when we talk about it being useful for groups of any kind, I might also point out that the handouts are photocopyable. So you guys really thought of it all. Thank you very much, Dr. Ramel Smith, for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And folks, thank you for joining us today for this edition of Mind Talk, which is brought to you daily as an educational public service. And it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. If you would like to be in touch with me directly, the email address is Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at MindTalk, M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember, you can listen to MindTalk at the MindTalk website. You can download the MindTalk app from either Google Play or iTunes. And remember also, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.